It's good to see you this morning um, in our time of worship. We come to an end of a journey that we've been on for the last seven weeks, talking about how God wants to transform us in our life. Romans 12, 2 talks about that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and so that God can work in us. And so we've talked about all kinds of areas of transformation. We've talked about how God wants to transform us in our spiritual health and our physical health and our mental health, our emotional health, our relational health, and last week our financial health. And so today we conclude this by talking about our life and our careers and how God wants to do it. Now I'm not just talking about your job. A career is more than just a job. A job is something you do. The career is really what I'm talking about is the, the whole thing of the direction and the trajectory of your life in regard to where God is, how God has made you and how important it is that we do that. See, because our ability to dream and our ability to understand what God wants us to do is a God-given gift. Uh, to imagine the future is something that God wants us to do. And it makes us different from animals because the thing is is that animals can only live it, but we can dream and we can think about things that, that could be uh, and unlike other things. Our imagination is also a powerful force for good and for evil. Um, it causes us all kinds of things. And, and we're most, the Bible tells us, we are most like our creator when we're creative in our lives. And so God has made us to be people who are more just than people who maintain a certain standard of living. He tells us that God wants us to be a people who have a vision for what we're going to uh, do. And that vision drives us in our life. It gives us hope for the future. And, and matter of fact, over one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, Proverbs 29, it says, without a vision of people perish. And sometimes we take that it means about a dream, but really that means without revelation, without God understanding what God, how God has made us, uh, there, is no, there is no hope for us in a real sense. And so we're going to talk about that today in a real sense. Now, um, <clears throat> every great achievement began, begins in our life with, with a dream, with imagination. I loved a couple of quotes that I was reading. Uh, one from Napoleon, of all people, said, imagination rules the world. Uh, obviously, he thought that armies did, so uh, it didn't work too well for him. Um, another person, Einstein, said, imagination is more important than knowledge, from one of the smartest guys that ever lived. So I thought, you know, obviously, it's an important thing. And so we're going to talk about today this whole thing about how everybody needs a dream for their life, and without a dream, we simply drift in life. We simply kind of become uh, complacent in life. One of the things that we talk about at Great Oaks is this, that our purpose at Great Oaks is to help people take their next step towards God, that all of us have a next step. And if we don't, aren't going toward that next step, what we're doing is we're simply existing in life, and life becomes boring and without any real purpose in life, and God wants us to do that. He wants us to, to understand that we need to invest uh, in that, and so basically, as a minister, I've invested my life, and we invest our, our resources as a church of encouraging people to go after the dream that God has put in their hearts, their next steps with God. But I want to say this, uh, after experiencing life for, for 61 years now already, that for every person who goes after their dream, who actually pursues their dream, I find nine or ten people, nine people out of ten maybe, that are afraid to begin. And they let problems stand in the way of the dream that God has given them. They're God-inspired dreams. And too many, for too many people, these problems become almost like insurmountable giants in our life, things that we can't overcome. And so we're going to talk about that today, and what do we do today? The question today is this, and what we're going to look at, how do you face the giants that, are, that, are, that come, seem to be in our lives, in life, and in work? Um, how do we do that? Well, fortunately, the Bible has a great story that tells us how to do that, and it's a story that we all learn as children. 
And it's over, over in, uh, in the Old Testament. It's actually over in 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, verses one, uh, 1 through uh, 52. We're not going to read all those verses, by the way, okay? So, you know, don't think, oh, man, that's a lot of verses. Yeah, it is a lot of verses, but it's a context of a story, so you can read it later. But we're going to talk about that today. It's, it's a wonderful story. It's called uh, the story of David and Goliath. Uh, literally, uh, David did face a literal giant. And while you and I will not probably face literal giants in our life, we will face the same kind of giants that David faced before he even faced the giant uh, of Goliath. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Now let's look ahead uh, next week and the following three, uh, the next three weeks following this week, uh, Chris Genders, our student pastor, is going to be teaching. Uh, He's going to be talking about how we make Jesus shrink down into something small. We put him on a wristband. You know, and we call it, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? We kind of make that. Or I think even the other day I walked into Chris's office and he had a bobblehead Jesus on his desk. And I'm going like, Chris, that's sacrilegious. You know, you don't put Jesus as a bobblehead. He said, well, that's the whole point. We do stuff like that, don't we? So he may have a bobblehead Jesus sitting up here the next three weeks. I don't know what he's going to be doing. But I appreciate him teaching because next Sunday afternoon, I'll be here next Sunday morning for the first service just to kind of hang out and learn. But then I'm going to, my wife and I are going to be jumping in a plane that Sunday afternoon and heading to Israel for 13 days. And so we look forward to that trip and what God's going to teach us there and and everything. And yes, it's safe. I'm going to talk about that more later. Uh, Yeah, we've talked to people over there. You know, there's certain places you don't go in Israel, uh, you know, just like uh, you don't go to South Peoria uh, afternoon, any day. And, uh, you know, there's places you go uh, you're probably just as safe there as you are pretty much anywhere else um, in America, especially in major cities like Chicago. And, uh, and you just stay away from certain places. So, you know, yeah, even though the news says, you know, and it's, the, the deal is this, what a better place to, to end, end everything than in the Holy Land, you know? No, I just don't. <laughs> you're going like, he's kind of flipping about that. No. No, we prayed about it and said if God doesn't wants us to go, that you know the door will clo- doesn't want us to go, the door will close, and if He wants us to go, the door will stay open. And uh, and we got an email from Cal's group. Uh, we're going with the Northwoods group, and we got an email from them a couple days ago saying that the Keshet, which is the travel agency there, it's a Christian group that, that that's, we're going with, said everything is safe right now. Matter of fact, I was interested to, uh, that uh, one of Dan Baker, our children's pastors. Good, uh, his uncle actually was a missionary in Israel for 35 years, just got back from there. Dan was telling him about a week or so ago about uh, us going to the Holy Land, and he said, you know, how's everything over there? He said, oh, they're always fighting each other. He said, go, tell them to go and have a great time. And that, that was his attitude after living there for 35 years. So to put all of you at ease, <clears throat> don't ask me again if, uh, if it's safe. Uh, or tell my wife. She's not even here this morning, so anyway... Uh, she's uh, doing some other stuff this weekend that she already planned. So anyway, let's look at the story of David and Goliath. Uh, We're just going to read a little snippet of it, then we're going to talk about some lessons that we can learn from this story. And they're lessons that apply to us in, I think, incredible ways. I mean, what a great story. I I learned, I remember, still remember the first, not the first time I did this, but when our kids were really young, we have have two two kids, a daughter who's uh, almost six years older than our son, and now my daughter has our two grandkids, and, you know, so she's a little bit older than a little kid now. And our son, who's grown, and, you know, the whole deal, and married, and everything. And I remember, though, when our kids were young, we would actually teach them. Uh, but one of the things we did was every night we'd have devotionals with them. And, and our kids just don't like to sit and listen. They wanted to act out stories. So one of their favorite stories to act out every time we did it was David and Goliath. And for some reason, 
our daughter who was older and much taller at the time, now that she's not, but much taller, she was always Goliath. And our son was always the hero, David, for some strange reason. And I still remember them acting like, you know, my, our daughter would play along with it. And David, you know, my little, little you know, I remember a three-year-old, four-year-old Keith winding up the slingshot, and not really, but in, in his imagination, throwing it, and Kara would, you know, be dramatic and fall down. Our kids were, you know, loved to get on stage and act and stuff, too. So I remember that. That's when I was reading the story. That's what I was thinking about. I'm going, like, what a weird image in my mind. Two little kids playing out this thing. But we all know the story probably in some ways. But I don't know how often we really think about the deeper lessons that are here in this story. But that's the story. It's, uh, it's kind of an interesting story. The context, if you go back a couple of chapters in 1 Samuel, is that Saul has been king. He's been king for Israel for a while. The people wanted the king. And so they got Saul. And Saul, for a while, followed God and did everything pretty well. And then he gets off track. And in chapter 15, God rejects him as king. But the rejection doesn't mean he immediately doesn't become king. It means that there's going to be a process where he's eliminated as king of Israel. That's in chapter 15. Chapter 16, we see, uh, we see some things happening that, uh, where, where uh, <clears throat> uh, 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 God tells a guy named Samuel, who's a prophet, to go and to anoint a new person. as uh, Chapter 16 and 17, to anoint a new person as king who's going to be the future king, and that person we find out is a young man named David. And then we come to chapter 17, uh, and chapter 17 is about this whole thing, this David and Goliath story. So verses 1 through 7 uh, says this, it says, The Philistine now mustered their army for battle. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills. They were on two sides of the hills. I guess I'm going to see this. I'm supposed to see this uh, in a week or so. And uh, with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. Now, that's a, that's a tall guy. You know, even in the NBA, he would be tall. Uh, even with seven-footers, a nine-footer is pretty tall. So uh, it's, he was a big guy, you know, way, way taller. And back then, everybody else was shorter, too. So the average height was, you know, probably, I don't know how old is, what the average height was back then, but it's much shorter. We've gotten taller and taller and taller in history the history of the world, and people have gotten taller. So obviously that was a big discrepancy there. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. Just the coat he was wearing of, of armor weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor. He carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The, sh the shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's uh, beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. So you get the picture here. This gigantic guy with this gigantic coat of armor on, he was, pretty he was pretty intimidating. And this is the story that we see. Now, we're going to talk about this today a little bit, and we're going to look at some other passages in here as well. It's unlikely that you or I will ever face a physical giant like Goliath. But as you look back in the life before this episode, you'll look back in life, you will see David face some other giants that you and I have more in common with him. Things that cause us so often not to simply, uh, to simply be afraid of doing the things that God has called us to do. Most common, the most common giants we face in life are things that we've already talked about. Relational giants, financial giants, mental giants, emotional giants. And David had to face these even before he faced the physical guy named Goliath. So we're going back a little bit earlier, the background. Now, like I said, God had told Samuel to go to Bethlehem and anoint a son of Jesse as the next king. 
But King Saul was still alive, so this was kind of a covert mission that Samuel went on to, to, to appoint the next king because Saul, and, and God had told, and Samuel had told uh, Saul that he wasn't going to be the king much longer. But he didn't know how, how long that was going to be or how soon it was going to be. He didn't know the process God was going through. So God sends this guy Samuel out to this guy named Jesse. And he says, he tells, God tells Samuel that one of Jesse's sons, he didn't tell him which one, but he says, one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king, and I want you to go and anoint him to prepare him for the future when he will be the king. And so he goes, and he asked Jesse to, to he says, Jesse said, I want you to bring your sons out. And so what Jesse does, he does, he brings out the oldest son, Eliab, first, and, and God says, no, that's not him. And he goes through this whole process of seven other sons, and and he says, no, that's not him, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. And then, then Samuel looks at him and says, well, is this all you got? I don't know if he'd said it that way, but it's basically what he said. And so um, uh, uh, Jesse, the father, looks and he says, you know, well, I do have this one other son. He's the runt of the family. He's the little guy. He's out watching the sheep right now. You want me to call him in? And Samuel says yes. And when he comes in, it's obvious to Samuel that this is the person that God wants to be king. And I don't know how it was obvious. I don't know if he was glowing or, you know, what the deal is. But the issue is he knew clearly that this David was to be the king. But for some reason, his father didn't see that in him. Keep that in mind as we go along here. So, what happened after he's anointed king? Uh, he's anointed to be king. For the next several years... Nothing happens. Nothing happens. He's anointed to be king. He, keeps, he, still, he still watches the sheep. He still does all the stuff that he's been doing. And, and everybody treats him the same way. I'm sure the brothers didn't go like, oh, King David. No, they didn't do that. He's the little kid. They probably treated him that way. So let's, let's talk about in order some, uh, uh, the giants that David had to face to become what God wanted them to be. Number one, the first dream buster that all of us, I'll call these dream busters, the first dream buster that happens in our life is delay. Delay, something happens. No dream is filled, fulfilled instantly. Usually when God tells us something and we, have an ima we, we imagine what God wants us to do and we begin to get a grasp of that, there's this time gap. And the waiting period in David's case was partially because his dad held him back. His dad didn't see the potential in him that, uh, that everybody else did. He didn't think David was old enough or experienced enough to leave his job as a shepherd to become a king. And it kind of says this later on in verses 12 through 15. It says, David was Jesse's youngest son. We're reminded of that once again. He said he, he took care of his father's sheep. He was still out doing the sheep thing. And he went back and forth between Bethlehem and Saul's camp. So we, when this whole story of David and Goliath happens, David, even though he's been anointed to be king in front of his father, his father still doesn't kind of hold him back. He says, you know, he's my little one. I don't want him to get out and get hurt. You know, I'm going to keep him back from the army and the battle, even though he was old enough to go. And, and even one translation says in these verses, it says in verse 12 to 15, it says, one verse actually says David was held back. See, the first barrier to our dreams so often of this and not doing what God wants us to do is when someone holds you back, sometimes because it can be of your age, sometimes it can be of your race, your gender, what you look like, any kind of discrimination could be a giant in our lives. And sometimes, sometimes this person that holds us back can be somebody who loves you. 
because they're fearful for being overprotective of you or, or making sure nothing happens to you. It can be a parent, it can be a friend, others... Uh, and, and so often, sometimes when God gives you a dream, others don't have that same dream. And sometimes we can have, as parents, let me just tell you, say this up front, we can have dreams for our kids that don't align with how God made them. The greatest, pro- the greatest problem you and I as a parent need to do, the greatest uh, dis- dis- disservice we can do to our kids is to ha- place upon them a dream that's our dream that is not what God made them to be. What we need to do as parents is look at how God has shaped our, our, our kids. Because all our, I would have never you know, in a million years thought that my daughter would be a counselor and my son would be a financial advisor. I have no desire to be either one of those. I, even though I do counsel by default in, in my ministry, but that's not the primary. That's the thing that drains the most energy out of me. My daughter loves it. I mean, she was an addiction recovery counselor for years here in, at Proctor. She was one of the lead counselors over there. And, and then she was and she in Tennessee now. She's, uh, doing, she's in that same field. My son, uh, financial, in the financial field, he loves that. He, even as a kid, he loved finances. He bought his first stocks. When, he bought his first individual stocks when he was nine years old. That's weird. But that's what he wanted to do. I could still see him sitting in an office of, of one of our good friends in Virginia who was head of Morgan Hat Stanley Dean Witter. He was the regional, East Coast regional director of Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. And, he, my, son, he, and uh, my son went to him one time and said, hey, can I buy stocks? He said, sure, I'll make an appointment. He walks in, here's a nine-year-old, walks into this corporate office. I mean, this office was almost as long as this room. Well, not quite, but you know, you get the idea. It's a huge office. He walks into it. And here's my son, he said, and our, our friend said, you guys sit back in the room, I'm talking to Keith. And that's the kind of thing, I'm going like, you know, and I'm going like, well, obviously God, God has placed something in him that he's interested in this. So for me to say you're going to be a pastor or something else, I discouraged him from being a pastor, by the way. Um, I know all the pitfalls. Say, you know, all the different things. But the thing is, is that so often, folks, sometimes people can hold us back from the dreams that God has for us because we need to look at, with our kids, we need to look at how God has shaped them, what their spiritual gifts are, what their heart, their passions are, what their abilities are, what their personality is like, and what their experiences as they go through life and experience things, the things that come their way. And that lets them know, young people, that lets you know what God wants you to do and be. That's part of God's dream for you. <clears throat> David's dad, though, <laughs> decided he was going to be a, David was going to be a shepherd, even though he's been anointed as a king. And then David's dad decides to have David deliver a care package to his older brothers on the front line. And while there, David hears about this guy Goliath, and everyone else is frightened by. That's the first dream buster is delay. The second dream buster is this: discouragement. Discouragement. Everybody was afraid of this guy Goliath. Everybody. Uh, Goliath had created a climate of culture and culture of fear, had he not? I mean, it's obvious he did. It says in verses 8 through 11, it says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? The reason he said that is because he was doing this one-on-one challenge, and nobody wanted to take him up on the one-on-one challenge. And so they lined up on the two hills, just kind of standing, posturing, and acting like they were going to do something. Nobody would go to battle. So Goliath says, choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. 
And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. This was a common practice in that day, looking back in history. So often, instead of you know, battles being fought by whole armies, occasionally what would happen is they would call out the champion from each army. And they would go head to head. And whoever won, that, was, they was, that would decide the outcome of the battle. Kind of saved a lot of you know, useless uh, killing and destruction sometimes. But it also meant that one person was dependent upon for your whole nation. And nobody, it, it, it's, it's obvious there, nobody wanted to go up against this nine-foot guy with 125 pounds worth of armor and a 15-pound spearhead. I mean, not anybody in their right mind would go up fighting him, you know, in the same way that he wanted to. See, this, this situation had demoralized everyone, and they were gripped with anxiety, with, they were terrified, they were traumatized. They felt hopeless, uh, so frightened that they couldn't do a thing. Sometimes in life, we look at our situation and we think, you know, uh, you know, does it sound like where you work that you feel like, well, you know, I, I can't do anything about the situation? I, I become, you become kind of paralyzed with fear. There's nothing we can do. So often conventional wisdom, though, is wrong. Uh, it, so often conventional wisdom is wrong. Uh, it, so often solutions come out of the rank and file things of life. So often I've seen kids that come in and, you know, people that, that don't know any better come into a situation and says, can we do it this way? They've not been in the culture for very long, and so they, they see something outside the, the normal things of life. And so often what we do is we, we find ourselves listening to the wrong voice. Uh, verse 16, Goliath, it says, Goliath challenged the Israelites every morning and every evening for 40 days. You know, after you listen to the same voices over and over and over again, what do you start doing? So often you start believing them, regardless of whether it's true or not. You start believing them. If you listen to negative statements long enough, you get negative. And that's what happens in life. That's what the Israelite army had happened to them, is they believed that there was no hope because, because they were thinking about only about themselves and about their abilities. But sometimes what, what you need in regard to getting past this fear is you need a fresh pair of eyes and ears. Because in verse 23 and 24, it says, Goliath came forward and challenged the Israelites as he had done before, and David heard it. But David didn't feel the same way as everybody else did, because it says, when the Israelites saw Goliath, they ran away in terror. Let me give you some advice from God's word. If you, if, if you want to get over this giant of this, this, this giant that, in, in, a, in a real sense of discouragement, that, that holds you back, don't hang out with fearful people. Don't hang out with fearful people because it's contagious. You hang out. My wife told me, my wife told me, it was funny. Uh, she said, she said, she came to me last week and she said, a lot of people at church, now if you're one of these people, bless your hearts, okay? But um, came to me and said, Vicki, do you think you're safe going to Israel? My wife hadn't thought about it one time until then. Not one time because she just refuses to watch the news. And I said, honey, I said, you know, I said, uh, we'll just wait till they give us, give us the word, one way or the other. But if she listens to those voices enough, you know, what will happen? If people keep telling you the same things over and over, what happens? You become fearful. You become fearful. And so the reality is that so often what happens is we become discouraged, we become fearful, and it calls us back from doing what God wants us to do. So that's the second uh, dream buster. The third one is this. The third one is this, the giant of disapproval. The giant of disapproval. We want everybody to like us. 
the reality is you'll always have naysayers and critics who don't like your dream. Here in this story, who was the naysayer and the critic, the first one? His brother. His brother. His brother questioned his motives. He treated his, his little brother, his oldest brother, treated him with disgust and disdain and disregard. He belittled, belittled him. Verses 26 through 29. It says, David, okay, David had already come, saw what was going on. He, in a real sense, he's, he kind of questions, you know, why you got so afraid? And so in verses 26 through 29, David asked the soldier standing nearby. The first he asked the question, a practical question, what will a man get for killing the Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? And so they told him. Well, and they told him what, what they'll get. He'll, you'll get, if you read the story, he'll get, uh, um, you'll get uh, the, the, the king's wa- uh, daughter as your wife. And I think the other cool thing is you get free from income taxes the rest of your life. That should be a great initiative for a lot of people to, can you imagine? You know, I might have, you know, I don't think I would have done it anyway. You know, going up against a nine-foot guy. But, you know, the thing is, they said, he asked that question. He, so he asked this simple question. And, and then he says, who is this pagan Philistine anyway? That he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God. But then it says this, but when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. He was angry at David because he says, what are you doing here anyway, little kid? What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? And I don't know how many sheep there was, but you know, anytime we try to put down somebody, we make them look even littler by, by exaggerating things. He says, what about that? What about those few sheep? Uh, he says, I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. And then David looks at him and says, kind of shrugs his shoulders, I'm sure, and he goes, what have I done now? David replied, I was only asking a question. What's the dynamic going on here? You ever heard of sibling rivalry? You ever had a brother or a sister who kind of if you've done something and, and, they, and they kind of like, I hate to say this, but sometimes they, they're kind of jealous of what you've done, that you've succeeded and they haven't maybe, or you've done something, they haven't. And, and, and the reality here, sometimes family doesn't want you, your dream to succeed. See, it's kind of interesting. Even Jesus had this problem. You know that Jesus had the problem with sibling rivalry? It says in Scripture that Jesus, okay, Jesus was born of a virgin, Right? But Jesus had brothers and sisters. It says in the scripture, it gives their names. They weren't born of a virgin, okay? They were born of Joseph and Mary, okay? And it says their names. But even though Jesus, can you imagine growing up in a household with being a, the, the younger brother or sister of Jesus? I mean, can you imagine having a, you know, anytime one of the kids would say, well, Jesus did that, and the parent would go, no, 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 Jesus doesn't do that. But Jesus told a lot, no, Jesus doesn't lie. You know, how, I mean, being a, having a perfect, a really a perfect sibling. Some of you think you got those, but no, you don't. You know, maybe you were the perfect sibling that never got in trouble and whatever. And my family is my youngest sister. But, you know, the thing is, the thing is, uh, none of, you know, the thing is we find out in Scripture, none of Jesus' siblings uh, accepted him as Lord and Savior until after the resurrection. That'd be pretty, you know, it'd be kind of hard to turn your back on that. My brother was died on a cross and was raised from the dead. They realized who he really was. So they kind of saw that here. The story, though, going back to David and his brother Eliab, who was really conceited here? Was it David or was his brother Eliab? It was his brother Eliab, the brother. 
because he was going like, who do you think you are? Who do you, th-? it's kind of like, I don't know, I wasn't here the earliest years of, of Great Oaks, but I've been talking to people and learned a lot of things about the first year. I came in about year four and a half, I think is about where I came in. Is that right, Carl? About four and a half, five years into the history of the church. I don't, Carl was one of the two people, we, Carl Holly, sitting right in the middle right here, I'll point them out, uh, was one of the first two, and, and Doug and Deb back there, they were the first two couples that took us out and tried to kill us by overfeeding us um, at Alexander's, the first meal I ever had at, uh, in, in, in Illinois. Um, appreciate it, it was a great meal, still recovering from it after all these years. Uh, we talked for like 12 hours, but anyway... Uh, the, deal, the deal was, is in the early years of Great Oaks, the church when I first came here was about 120 people. Uh, we were meeting in the elementary school, the Brown School, okay, <laughs> that will not be a school after a couple of years from now, okay. But the reality is, it's up where we were, and it was about 120 people. And, and in the community, uh, the, uh, the FEC had given us 20 acres of land here, the part of this land here. But then this, this group of people, this 120 people, or even earlier than that, probably were less people than that, it's decided that they wanted to, ha- to have some more property, and so we actually own now about approximately, approximately 40 acres of land here. And there were some people I understand in the community that even later on asked me, why does a church need 40 acres of land? What are you going to do with all that? I actually had somebody ask me that one time. I, you know, so who do you think you are that you need 40 acres of land? That was the attitude somebody had with me one time. And I'm going like, back up. Um, <clears throat> See, the problem was this. I, I don't believe the early church, and talking to people about the people when, we, when you bought the land, that was before I came even, the thing wasn't all about how, much, how, big a, how big a deal we are. That was the wrong question. The question is, how big a God do we believe in? Because the division was more than just, I mean, some people in the church wanted to buy the whole 60 behind here as well. And that's a real question. Why would any church need 100 acres of land, you know? And 40 is huge. Who would have known? at that time, that we actually use all 40 acres of our land every year for multiple events. Because we have this property here, the middle school now uses, uses part of our property as a, as a cross-country. We're their cross-country track. We have the soccer fields that are on our property because the school has expanded. We were able to do that. We built this, this connection with the community because of the things that God has done. Not because we said, oh, we're such a great church and we're going to get so big and we're going to need 40 acres. No, because we saw a God who was more than just about a building. But God who could use us all. So the thing is, sometimes, sometimes people will, will disapprove of you and, and, and look at you and ask your motives and that can be a dream buster as well. And it was with, it, it, could have been, it could have been easily with David because nobody seemed to want to encourage him. The fourth dream buster David had to face before he faced Goliath was the giant of doubt. The giant of doubt. The question was, am I capable and up to the task? And, and, and it's interesting, so often the experts will uh, doubt your ability. And who was the expert that doubted his ability in the story? A guy named King Saul. If anybody was an expert in war and battle, it was King Saul, right? This guy, ever since he'd started been the leader of the, of the nation of Israel, they'd fought battle after battle after battle after battle. They'd, he was a, a, a crusty old veteran of war. And so when, when King Saul hears about David and he sends for him in verse 32 and 33, David comes to him and this young guy says to, says to the king, he says, King, don't worry about this Philistine. He said, I'll go fight him. 
But Saul's reply as the expert is this. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight the Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy and he's been a man of war since his youth. Do you think that encouraged David a lot? I mean, people do it all like, you can't do that because you're too young. You can't do that because you don't have enough education. You can't do that because you don't have enough experience. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. That becomes a giant in so many of our lives. You can't. And that's why so many people, so often, what they do is they simply let the giant of doubt, the giant of doubt, direct their life. And some people thought, you know, his brother thought he was cocky, thought David was cocky. But so often, people often misinterpret confidence in God as conceit. And there's a huge difference. See, the experts are often wrong. The experts are often wrong. And so those four giants together were things that David had to deal with before he ever got to facing this Philistine giant named Goliath. And so what do we, what do we learn from this story? What do we learn from this story? Just four little quick things. How do you defeat the giants in the life? How do you overcome these doubts and these, these fears, this discouragement, all the things that happen your way? Four things I see in the story that, that reminds me of this. Number one, and these are four things that David did. Number one, remember how God helped me in the past. Remember how God helped me in the past. Let me tell you, that's a confidence builder. Anytime I become discouraged in life, you know what I do? I pull out my journals. And I don't journal all the time, but I journal a lot. And I read about what God did in the past, and I remind myself of what God did in the past in my life. Because, you know, guys, you know, my life, like your life, has not been perfect. And there's been challenges in life, and there's been times in life when I've been discouraged in so many ways. But every time when I look back, I can see God at work in my life. Back in seminary, when I didn't have hardly a dollar, Vicky and I had just gotten married, we didn't have any money, we were just getting started off. You know, I, actually, I got out of college and just paid off. I went through college, paid my way through school. My last semester, I sold my car to pay for my last semester. So literally, I came out of college, got married that next summer, and I had no car. I had no debt, but I had no car. And so we, the first thing we had to do was work that whole summer just to buy a cheap junker car. And then we started seminary in the fall, got married, started seminary, lived in a trailer. And it was a great experience. It really was. And every time I came to the place of barely having enough to scrape ends meet, I cannot tell you how many times I get a check in the mail from friends and people back in my home church encouraging me. And every time, I mean, you're going like, no, nah, Bill, you know, every time it was exactly what we needed. It happened over three years. It happened like 10 times. And I remember that. I remember how 14, 15 years ago when I was kind of in my rope in my previous church and done everything that I felt God, I've done nothing here differently than I did there. <laughs> Just the circumstances are different. And the leaders are different. And the people are different in the vision. A lot. That, that's a lot. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I got to the place of going like, God, do you really still want me to be in ministry? And I can't remember how God encouraged me to stay, to stay put. He said, yeah, yeah, I don't want you to, you know, I don't want you to go sell something. I want you to stay in ministry. That's what I called you to. And how often people would encourage me. And now at the end of my rope, when I came to a certain place, and I'm going like, man, I just don't want to do this anymore. How God, I'm reminded of those times, 
Remember, if you want to defeat the giants in life, one of the best things you can do is remember how God helped you in the past. In verse 36 and 37, it says this, David says, your servant, David says, your servant has killed both a lion and a bear. After he responds to Saul, he says, your servant has killed both a lion and the bear. The Lord has rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine as well. He remembered what God had already done, and he said, you know, bears and lions are pretty big creatures. They're pretty ferocious. I don't see them as being any more ferocious than this big, ugly Goliath. I don't know if Goliath is ugly or not. I'm just thinking, you know, he's... And how do you do with that? When everybody else is discouraged, not encouraging, what do you do? I, I, I remember uh, in Psalm 119, verse 11, it says this. David says, I've banked your promises in the vault of my heart. That's in the message translation. I've banked your promises in the vault of my heart. I think that's a great Psalm 119, 11. That's a great verse. That's a great thing that you need to bank away, put them away, the promises of God and, and, and the things he's done in your life and how he's met those promises in the vault of your heart. And from time to time, the way to overcome discouragement and the giants that, you, that come to your way is to remember what God has done. That's number one. Number two, use the tools that God has given me. Use the tools that God has given me. So often we think well, we can't do it now because I don't have enough. I don't have enough experience, money, whatever, education, whatever it will be. Because in verse 30, 38, see, every time somebody, if somebody doesn't think that they might have a, you might have a dream and you're going to do it this way, somebody else will have a dream and they want you to do it their way. And this is what happens with David and Saul. David says in verse 38, he says, then Saul dressed because he said, okay, now, okay, David, I'll go along with your crazy plan, but you got to do it my way. He says, then Saul dressed David in his own armor, but David said, I cannot go out in these because I'm not used to them. Can you imagine? Saul was a full-grown big, he was a tall man, it says in Scripture. He wasn't nine feet tall, but he was a tall man. He was taller, it says, by head above everybody. He was a big guy. And here's this, this kid, this teenage, young teenage kid. And what it is, Saul's trying to dress him up in his armor. He probably looked ridiculous. He'd probably you know, like wearing your father's clothes. You know, the, you know, probably his hands didn't reach to the end, and, you know, it's back, you know, going down on the floor. He puts him in this armor. And, but David said, I cannot go out in these because I'm not used to them. So he took what he had. He took what he had. Instead, he took them off. Instead, he chose five smooth stones for his sling because that's what David knew and what David had. That's what he had skill in. He had used this all the time. It wasn't a slingshot, by the way, okay? It's not one of those things, you know, like a kid's slingshot. This was a weapon that could be used. And, and, and in, in those days, people used them with incredible accuracy. They practiced all the time. So David said, you know, he said, I'll use the tools that God has given me. I don't have to wait for later. Use what God has given you now. See, other times, sometimes people want to load other things on you and say, well, you got to wait, you got to wait, you've got to wait. Sometimes we wait too long. And God wants us to go forward sometimes. I love what it says. One of my favorite verses in all scriptures in Ecclesiastes 11.4, it says this in the NLT translation, if you wait for perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. Don't you love, put that on your refrigerator and look at it every day. If you wait for perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. Is that true? Because there's always something that's not quite right. 
And God says, hey, I've given you a dream. Go for it, and it'll never be. You know, it's not perfect. You're not as educated as you can be someday. You might not have as much resources as you will have. You, you might not have as much experience. But he says, use what you have now, and that's what David did. That's what David did. Number three. The third thing I see is this. Ignore the dream busters. Ignore these things. That's what David did. It's interesting that not one person in the story, not one person encouraged David. But he did it anyway. So what did he do? It doesn't say right there, but later on in, in, in 1 Samuel, in verse Samuel 36, of chapter 30, verse 6, it says, when others were speaking against him, this is another time that David was challenged, when others were speaking against him, David encouraged himself in the Lord. What in the world does that mean? He, encouraged, he ignored what everybody else said. God, I'm going to stick with you, and I'm going to stick with your plan, what you've given me. This is not just about having a positive mental attitude, okay? This is about trusting in God in faith and believing that God has something more for you than what you have in your life already. And God has built you for a certain thing, and you need to go for that. See, positive thinking is better than negative thinking, but it's not enough. You need far more. you got to ignore the dream busters, the discouragers, and the people that want to do your way. you got to stick to God's plan. Make sure it's God's plan, but stick to God's plan. And finally, number four, number four, the fourth thing I see that David did is expect God to help me, but expect God to help me for his glory. Verses 45 through 47, David shouted to Goliath, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you with a slingshot. No, that's not what he says. He says, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Today, look at David, how he says it. Today, the Lord will conquer you. And the whole world will know that there is a God. And everyone will know that the Lord doesn't need weapons to rescue his people. It is his battle, not ours. The Lord will give you to us. When it's God's plan... Done God's way. Who gets the glory? God. It's not about us. David was not pointing to himself. He's not going like, oh, I'm such an incredible slingshot artist that I could be able to take down this big giant guy. No. If he'd have looked at it from those standpoint, he'd have ran the opposite way as well. But he understood this. He expected God to help him for his glory. Let me ask you this question as we close. What are you expecting God to do in your life? What are you expecting God to do in your life? The Bible says, there's so many verses there I could, could refer to, but it says things like, without faith it's impossible to please God. It says, Whosoever is not a, whatsoever is not of faith is, is sin. He's saying that faith, trusting in God, is the ultimate act. In our life, it directs us towards God. I remember many years ago when I was 20 years old. That's a long time ago. Um, I thought about this, and you know, I'd gone through I'd gone through high school, and I'd been a couple of years in college, and couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. But it was always about what I wanted to do. <laughs> and then I then I then I caught a vision from God, and God simply said, "Bill, I don't want you to I don't want you to do what you want to do. I want you to do what I want you to do." And so when I began to do that, I simply did this. I said, well, God, 
I'm not the smartest guy around. I'm not the most educated guy around. I'm not the best looking guy around. But by faith, I want to trust you, God, to lead me where you want me to go. And then I said something that I, I sometimes regret. Not really. And God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go, anytime you want me to go. And I'll do whatever you want me to do. The only time I've ever gotten in trouble since then is when I've done it my way. That's the only time. When I came 14 years ago to the place of saying, God, I don't want to be in ministry anymore for a long time, Vicky and I kept saying, I've said this before, Vicky and I kept saying, God, we'll go anywhere if you want to take us south, somewhere warm. We, we literally prayed that prayer. Because neither Vicky or I like cold weather. Now, if you grew up in Illinois, maybe you used to. If you're from Minnesota, you just think, you know, this is warm, you know? <laughs> or Canada or wherever it might be. But the reality is, God can, can, and so we said that, and it was not until we said, God, we were reminded, we remind Vicky and I started praying together again and said, God, we'll, take, we'll go anywhere you want us to go, anytime you want us to go. And that's when God opened the doors here. And I'm getting to think about what would have happened in our lives if we would simply said no to God. No, God, we're going to go south. We, we might have been warm. But we, would we be doing the things that God wanted us to do? Because I really believe this was God's plan for us. And so the question for me is, what are you expecting God to do in your life? And if you said, God, I'll do anything you want me to do, go anywhere you want me to go. For your glory. See, God in faith says, I want you to trust me. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it's tough. But I'll tell you, man, coming here has been an adventure. A good adventure, okay? In many ways. Yeah, it's tough that our family lives on the East Coast. It's tough that our kids now live in Knoxville, Tennessee, and Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we don't see them as often as we'd like. But God has opened doors for us that we've never expected. I mean, this, this next week, I get to go to a place I've always wanted to go to, but never had the opportunity to. But because of generosity of leaders in this church, we're going. And I don't know what the next adventure will be. But with God, when you do it his way, it's always an adventure, and it's always God always gets the glory. So, God wants you to be transformed spiritually, relationally, emotionally, mentally, financially, and in your life and career. He wants you to follow his dream for your life. The question is, will you? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your incredible love for us. I pray that you would just guide us this morning as we uh, close this service by singing a song to you, God, because you are the object of our worship here, God, not the team up on stage, not anything else, but God, as we sing the song, it only guides us and it only guides us in our in our worship towards you, God. So help us to help us to uh, just believe, God, that you have a plan and a purpose for our lives because you do, and help us to follow that dream, that plan, and that purpose, and help us to do it in faith, God. Help us to trust in you when we don't see the next step down the road, way down the road, but we can see the next step right in front of us, and help us to take that step, whatever it may be. Thank you, God, for your incredible love. And guide us this week as we trust in you 
not knowing what each day will bring, but knowing, God, that you hold each day in your hands. And you, want it, you have something in store for each of us if we'll just open our lives to you, God, and let you work in us. We ask that you would just do this. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.